Um, tonight we're being hosted here by the Norwegian Council for Africa and we're here to talk about what's happening in Swaziland, particularly with the political and social uh, situation. As some of you know, uh, Swaziland is the last absolute monarchy in Africa um, and political parties there have been banned um, since the 1970s, so uh, opposition to the current uh, regime is not legally allowed. Um, we have three contributors with us today to talk to us about uh, the politics in Swaziland. Um, first, we have Manoba Mumalo. Uh, Manoba is uh, a student at NMBU and he's the president of the Ubuntu Students Association at NMBU. Uh, Manoba is also a human rights activist and a journalist, and he's written extensively about Swaziland. He's written for newspapers <coughs> such as the Mail and Guardian and the Daily Maverick in South Africa, as well as the Swazi Observer and Times of Swaziland in Swaziland, um, among others. Um, Manoba will talk to us for about 15 minutes about the current um, social and political climate in Swaziland. Um, and then our second contributor is Beggy Lamini. Um, Beggy is an exiled former Swaziland Youth Congress president, uh, and that is the youth wing of the People's United Democratic Movement. Uh, the People's United Democratic Movement is the largest uh, political party in Swaziland and is in opposition to the government. Um, while in Swaziland, Becky served almost four years in prison as a result of his political activities um, and eventually he had to flee the country um, upon finding out that he was going to be rearrested. Um, and that's one of the things that eventually <coughs> led him to Norway. Um, our third contributor is Morten uh, Nielsen. Uh, Morten is the head of Secretariat and Campaigns and Communication for, the global, action, for global Action in Denmark. Global Action has had partnerships with different parts of the movement for democracy in Swaziland for 15 years, and uh, Morton's first visit to the country was in 1986. Uh, Morton will talk to us for about five to seven minutes um, about the work that his organization does in Swaziland, why they're focused on Swaziland, and what role the international community can play um, in amplifying the voices of those fighting for democracy in Swaziland. Um, so we'll start with uh, Mangoba, and Mangoba will be followed by Becky, and lastly we'll hear from, uh, from <coughs> Morton. Um, and then after that we'll break for about five minutes for water or the toilet, and then we'll come back and have a panel discussion and uh, engage with the audience a lot more. Uh, thank you. I go by the name Chavez, which quite is very easy for people to pronounce. Um, Mine is really to give a kind of a background because I understand that a lot of people maybe may not really be aware about what's happening in Swaziland or now called Eswatini. Uh, just uh, by way of a brief historical uh, background, Swaziland gained in its independence in 1968, uh, so-called independence, because it wasn't really colonized in the formal sense, in the sense that most other African countries were colonized. It was kind of a protectorate uh, by the Swazi authorities at the time uh, to help Swazis preserve whatever they call a country from annexation into South Africa and the Boers and, and the, the white rule in South Africa. <coughs> but uh, this independence was of course a highly contested uh, uh, thing because there were various players who wanted to have a stake in this newly formed independence. But when the British had left, it had elevated the status of what was then a paramount chief into a king. 
And this king was to play a significant <coughs> role in shaping so as politics, in shaping the future of the country. And, but relatively, the country was left with a democratic constitution, which allowed for multi-party democracy and a, a bill of rights, which kind of bequeathed a number of rights to the ordinary people of Swaziland <coughs> in 1968. Um, but that democracy or that democratic dispensation didn't live for a long time. The plethora of issues that led to the 1973, what we call today a royal coup, where the king, his brothers, and all his close associates uh, revoked the constitution and ruled by decree. Now, when the king revoked the constitution in 1973, he made a lot of reasonings, one of which was that the so-called democracy, multi-party human rights, was incompatible with the system of life and the traditions and cultures of Swaziland. And he wanted to introduce what he called a home-brewed system that would be compatible with how Swazis live and Swazi culture and tradition. Now, what ultimately caused a lot of problems was the fact that he concentrated on legislative, executive, and judicial power uh, on himself. And uh, for a very long time, he was ruling by decree. But importantly, he introduced a state of emergency, which ran and was amongst the longest running state of emergency in, in at least uh, uh, Southern Africa or Africa as a whole. So that is the crux of what defined Swaziland today. It is that historic injustice in 1973 where the executive, where the king appropriated all power to himself. He became the judge, he became the legislator, and he became uh, the executive. Now, that state of emergency also came with a number of laws that ensured that obviously when you're going to revoke a constitution, subsequently people are going to uh, kind of challenge that. Uh, and then he introduced for the first time a, a, an army which Swaziland didn't have uh, so that it can preserve peace and they were to use the words they used specifically to be deployed in strategic places and then there were also a variety of other laws that were introduced as part of the state of emergency. Now but Swaziland was located in the politics of the Southern African region. South Africa was going through a turbulent period in terms of the resistance movement of the ANC and the, and the Boer uh, and the nationalist government. So in 1976 in South Africa, there was a lot of exiles of South African youth, activists and otherwise, to neighboring countries, and none of which was Swaziland. So the influence of the coming of South Africa invigorated the politics of the country. And in 1977, Swaziland had the biggest strike led by teachers, which called for the return of democracy, which wanted a scrap of the... Uh, state of emergency, which wanted some kind of a return back to that newly established uh, uh, constitution that at least gave some form of rights to the people of Swaziland. Uh, so the influence of South Africa to Swaziland, at least during that period in 1976, led to the 1977 strike. And in 1978, the king introduced uh, what he called the Dungunja system of government on the advice of the South African uh, uh, Apartheid regime, because you've got to appreciate that Swaziland was a buffer zone for the ANC, 
and therefore a lot of the ANC activists were coming to Swaziland, politicizing Swazis and, and a variety of other things. So the apartheid government understood that if it had to deal with the South African liberation movement, it must deal also with these states around it. And in Swaziland, it wanted it established what it called a Tinkundla system of government, which is really nothing more than politics without politics. You had to run for office as an individual. Political parties were banned, so therefore people could only represent their particular district, districts or localities uh, if they wanted to, to go to parliament. Even then, people could not immediately vote themselves into parliament. They had to vote for what they called an electoral college, wherein those people would then decide who will be the people who are going to, so, to be um, uh, the members of parliament. And this went on for a very long time, right up until 1992, when the then now the direct representation in parliament was introduced. Um, as it was introduced in 1994, there was still that pending long-established state of emergency. The king was ruling by decree. Um, there was a lot of these laws that militated against the formation of trade unions, civil <coughs> society groups. But of course, the sources were resisting. They were trying to reorganize and trying to find a way through which they could challenge the state. But of course, we've got to appreciate that Sudan is a significantly small country, small population. Uh, in the majority of cases, influenced a lot by South Africa. So by 2000, by the 90s, there was a lot of pressure on the king, especially after Mandela was released, was trying to really soften the king's hand around establishing democracy. By 2005, the king had established uh, what he called the constitution, which was nothing more than just consolidation of his powers of the 1973 decree into a constitutional document. That, 19, that 2005 constitution didn't change much in terms of the body politics of the country. Political parties <coughs> remained banned. The king still had absolute powers. He had power to appoint members of the Judicial Service Commission who appoint the judges. He, he appoints 10 members of the Senate and then 20 members of the Senate and the uh, General Assembly appoints 10. He appoints 10 members of the General uh, uh, of Parliament over and above the, the 55 that we as ordinary citizens elect into parliament. <coughs> Those people who we got to elect into parliament, they do not have a national mandate. They have to represent their localities. They are, are supposed not to come from political parties. And the king ultimately has the final decision and arbiter around who becomes the prime minister, who constitutes the, the cabinet. And that cabinet itself has got to take a mandate from the king. So the king is literally a god of Swaziland in the political reign. The constitution makes it explicitly clear that it cannot be challenged uh, legally, which means the king is literally above the law. He's also, he constitutes the government. So in the 21st century, right when other countries are planning on putting people to mass and everything, in Swaziland, we still have never elected a government of our choice, right up to now. Secondly, Swazis have never up to this day, mandated or even revoked uh, any government for whatever that uh, the government may do or not do. Now, those are the political and historic, just briefly, of the condition that lead to present-day uh, Swaziland. Now, what does this politics have an effect on the social conditions that Swaziland that prevail in Swaziland today? One. Because of this power that the king has and because of the fact that the people are unable to challenge the king, they're unable to 
put policies to the government that would benefit the people. We had to deal with the different crises that Africans perhaps dealt differently. While many African countries were embroiled in liberation movements and struggles and violence and, and wars, Swaziland had a different war. We have never had a conflict in the, in the strict sense of the word, but we had to deal with HIV and AIDS. HIV and AIDS almost wiped the country out. Swaziland, of a country of about 1.2 million now, and I'm sure 10 years back it was just a million or so, 15 years back, we're now about 1.2 million. In 2010, 60% of all deaths were because of HIV and AIDS. 42.6% of the population had HIV. The estimated by 2010 that there were 120 ch child-held families. The country was dying at astronomical levels. At every part of the global community they were talking about Swaziland, a country that was on the brink of collapse because of HIV and AIDS. But also, what then unfolded in the subsequent years was that the government couldn't respond to that crisis <coughs> and the HIV wreaked havoc in the, in the entire country. But of course now it has rescinded owing to a lot of interventions from international NGOs, but also from Swazis themselves getting to know, to know better about the disease. So at the social economic level, that was one of the, 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 the problems that uh, the, the inability of Swazis to influence the policies of the government led to. The second thing is that the, the, the economy of the country went down. Now Swaziland generally has been Unlike most countries in the 80s, 70s, generally stable, generally the economy was doing well. Partly because most of the anti-apartheid movements in South Africa didn't want to invest in Swaziland because of the sanctions. So they invested in Swaziland because Swaziland and South Africa is literally one country. Three, two hours you drive in and, and, and drive out. So, for example, the Waterford Gamslaba, which is the biggest uh, institution, uh, international school, was established in Swaziland, as opposed to South Africa, because there were, there were a lot of investments that came to Swaziland. So we were shielded economically, at least from, from the political mess that was happening. Now, as South Africa began to re-establish itself, its democracy and everything, things began to change in Swaziland. Most of the investments went back to South Africa. Most of the South African exiles went back to South Africa. But also the Mozambicans who had kind of sustained the, the, the township economy of, of some sort, who had come to the country owing to the civil wars that was happening in Mozambique, began to go back. So Swaziland began to be exposed into the 90s about the state and the direction of the country. But so this is, I guess, Beggy will get into this, how we responded to that. Um, I think also I want to mention this point. How do you live in an absolute monarchy? Uh, it's kind of difficult for people to conceptualize how something that existed in the 14th century in Europe, in various parts of the world, exists in the 21st century now. Now, consider this. Nowhere in Swaziland there's a lot of similarities were both ruled by a king, even though in Norway it's a constitutional monarch with, with a, it doesn't have real executive power. In Swaziland we have. We generally have the smaller population, the two countries. Norway about five, uh, five million of them, Swaziland 1.2 million. But the important part is in the economies. Norway has what, they, what you call oil fund, sovereign wealth fund. We also have something similar in Swaziland. Except ours is literally owned by the king, 100% doesn't pay taxes, has severe and absolute control to strategic sectors of the economy. And that has been the king's um, 
uh, that has been the king's uh, piggy bank of some sort, where he gets much of the money, where he sustains uh, the, his, his autocratic rule. But also more than anything, this is where he's able to buy patronage from among some of the, uh, the, the Swazi elite uh, in the country. I would like to conclude uh, my, my segment of this presentation by uh, just talking about um, this report by Forbes magazine in 2008. In 2008, Forbes magazine ranked King Swati III as the third wealthiest monarch in the entire Africa and the 12th of all monarchs in the world. Now that should give, and they estimated that he had 200, 200 million US dollars in, 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 in wealth. Now, you have a country where uh, the statistics say 63% of the population lives under the poverty line. And you have 120,000 child-headed families and a lot of uh, problems that the country faces. So the king, as an absolute ruler, is able to <coughs> shield himself from criticism. But secondly, Switzerland is a small country. It's difficult for people to know and for people to care. Number three, Switzerland is in the geopolitics of the region and otherwise is an insignificant country. That is why today we have a country that bans political parties. We've got a king who appoints the government, gives them the mandate. And even where Swazis, even those country, those people who elect representatives <coughs> into parliament, try to remove the government as they did, a two-thirds majority in parliament ruled that the king's government, rather voted in parliament, in the last parliament, that the king's government was not what they wanted, and they made a vote of no confidence in the government. But because the king is an absolute monarch, he overruled parliament and still reappointed the same prime minister, the same government, back into office. So <coughs> sadly, this is the case that has led to many of us here today, and uh, it has led to Swaziland being what it is today. Thank you. Brief overview of Swaziland. <laughs> Speedy overview. Yeah. Uh, I, I will talk a bit about uh, how people are trying to change uh, what one was talking about. Uh, it's a it's a difficult situation. I will just uh, use my my experiences in trying to to change the situation in Swaziland. Uh, at first, I started to, to be politically engaged when I was uh, at the University of Switzerland, uh, trying to change the situation in terms of administration inside the university, uh, mobilizing students. And then my consciousness was raised to also look into the bigger political uh, situation in Switzerland, whereby uh, the monarchy is... Uh, actually above everything, politically, economically, and it's also shaping the social lives of the people. Then I, I engaged myself in the struggle uh, because I believed that uh, we needed multi-party democracy in Swaziland, so that we are able to, to use this political voice to change uh, the socio-economic conditions in Swaziland. Uh, I'm one of the activists who doesn't come from, uh, from the urban areas of Swaziland. I come from, uh, from the rural communities, 
in Swaziland. That is where 70% of the people stay. And life is really harsh in the, in the rural communities. When we talk about, uh, for example, infrastructure development, uh, schools or clinics, life is really harsh in the rural areas. But the movement has not been able to penetrate enough uh, in the rural areas. So it's one of the things that motivated me to say, now I have this chance to be in the University of Swaziland and I have learned, because not many people in Swaziland access university. Less than 10% of those who graduate from high school actually go for tertiary education. So that's a, a small number. So I felt that uh, I have been privileged to get that chance. So then why not in, use this education to try and change uh, the situation in Swaziland. Uh, that was uh, uh, a choice that I made, but uh, then that choice comes with uh, consequences, of course. When you, when you try to change the situation in, a, in an absolute monarchy, as Mangoba explained it. The, the biggest change was uh, was of course uh, when I joined uh, Pudemo yeah, after graduating from university in 2006. That was the, the game changer because now Pudemo is the organization that is actually challenging the monarchy so that we transition to multi-party democracy. As we were organizing as young people, yeah, I was first arrested in 2007 uh, for our activism. Uh, I didn't stay that long in prison, it was just 12 days. But those 12 days, I think they were the most critical 12 days in my life, because that is when I, re I really resolved again that uh, this is the right course. So I will go for it. Uh, I was out of prison and we, we engaged more and more people trying to change the situation on the ground. Our strategies, of course, was to mobilize ordinary people because we need to raise their consciousness so that they rise up uh, to demand their rights. Because uh, I don't believe that there is a shortcut besides mobilizing ordinary people. At least if we want to establish a democracy, people must uh, be able to stand up for their own rights. So that is what I was engaged in until uh, I was arrested in 2010 again uh, for, for terrorism. The state had come up with uh, the Suppression of Terrorism Act 2008, which banned my organization uh, to be a terrorist organization. The intention was just to, to demobilize people who are calling for change. And the state uh, was able to put me away for close to four years, uh, which was uh, a difficult moment, of course, personal, because you think about your own life and also the cause. Uh, but the cause is and uh, is still worthwhile. So that is why I, after coming out of prison, I was still resolute. My first speech was that uh, the struggle continues. So I believe that uh, more and more people uh, in Swaziland, especially the young people, are, are trying to change the situation uh, in Swaziland. We are a very closed uh, society. 
uh, we don't have uh, much friends. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, those who are calling for change, we don't have much friends from outside. As, as Magno was explaining, it's not the conflict that is known that much. It's not attractive to many people. It's not attractive to the media because nobody's dying. Uh, it's not like an armed not, conflict. They're not shot. They're dying. Yeah, yeah they're dying because of hunger, disease, uh, poverty. And the regime doesn't... Uh, arrest many people at the same time. No, it will just pick a few, just to set an example to the rest. Then they will toe the line. So I am still engaged in that struggle. I left uh, Swaziland. It's five years, uh, actually, this month. Yeah, it's five years since I left Swaziland. But I'm still engaged uh, in the struggle, and we are trying to raise awareness outside so that we support the movement inside Swaziland. Uh, because without the movement inside Swaziland, there will be no change. We cannot build a democracy uh, without people uh, taking up the struggle by themselves. So that is what uh, we are doing from outside in terms of uh, supporting the movement. Trade unions have been critical in the call for democracy in Swaziland. The student movement has been... Uh, a critical voice in the call for democracy in Swaziland. And of course, uh, young people have been critical. Mangoba, we're talking about uh, uh, people living with HIV. They've also been uh, central at some point, more especially demanding uh, more access to healthcare. And that movement is interesting because it was mainly led by, by women. Mm because Swaziland doesn't have a safety net system. So when uh, people were dying in magnitudes and when people were really sick, who was taking care of them, it was the women at home. So they, they really went out to mobilize that we need more health care, which I think uh, was a good thing when we talk about uh, the struggles for gender equality, because now more and more women were coming out uh, to demand something from the government. That was an opportunity which came out from the crisis of HIV. Yeah. I would end there for now. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's my mission to tell you why Swazil is interesting. Yeah? Um, I, I want to start somewhere else. It's uh, maybe that quite often you are told if you're working with Africa, that things cannot be changed because there's some certain economic interests in this country, you know. We need the, the minerals from DR Congo and that's the reason why there will still be civil war and so on. Nobody really get anything out of Swaziland except a bit of sugar. <laughs> so so, it, so there is very little political economic interest in the country. So that should be easy to solve, huh? you can say. Because uh, I don't think anybody think, except a few idiots, that that an absolute monarchy is the way forward for any country in this world. Um, so the f the first thing I wondered about when I was entering into Switzerland the first time, uh, it was that uh, all the problems in Switzerland was under or supported by the international community. The European Union was in charge of paying for education in the entire country. The Americans was in charge of paying for the 
include all health uh, care systems in the country. Uh, all infrastructure was done by international donors, including big international NGOs. Um, you know, nobody really were concerned that people in Switzerland had absolutely no rights, huh? because that's what absolute monarchy means. You know, the king owns the land, you live on his land. If you cannot live on your land, you are not living in Switzerland any longer. Hmm? This king has taken whole communities, thousands of people, put them on trucks, drive them to the South African border and kick them into the neighboring country because they didn't want to accept one of these chiefs. Huh? So we're talking about a country where, where absolute power means that you can exercise the absolute power and everybody knows it. Huh? And that's the reason they behave. Because if they don't behave, the kids don't get a scholarship to school, they will not get a job, they will not get a land, that they, you know, they will get no support, nothing. Eh? So being an enemy of the king, you cannot live in the country. Or if you do it, you pay a quite high price for it. So it's true what, uh, what Big is saying, you know, they don't kill people in the numbers, they don't arrest people in the numbers. But what they do is they're taking a young man, that they put him in prison on hilarious uh, charges, and then there is a democratic movement standing outside and saying, mm, now this chair is empty, you know, he was just put in prison for hilarious charges. Will you take over his position? You know, nobody will do that. <laughs> so by taking individuals, leaders, and victimize them, they're able to control people in the country and they do it quite efficient, extremely efficient. You know, when I was in Swaziland the first time, women needed to have uh, their husband's senior tour to get a driver license or a passport. Eh? Um, it had been changed, uh, but a lot of things have not been changed. Eh? Um, the Swazi constitution was paid by Commonwealth. Eh? It was constitutional experts from Commonwealth who made a constitution who ensure a king absolute power politically, economically, socially, and so on. It's, it's amazing. You know, people from London, from the most famous universities, was in charge of developing a constitution who completely take away people's rights, people's rights. It had a bill of, of rights in the Swazi constitution. But on the last page they say, if any of these rights in this constitution in any way is in conflict with Swazi culture and custom, it's Swazi and culture who, uh, custom who, who will prevail. Eh? And all your rights you could put up with the sun never shine. Eh? Because the king decides in the end how you live this. So that was the reason why my organization engaged into Swaziland. First of all, Swaziland is an export of bad ideas to other countries. Eh? Sometimes uh, we wonder in our organization if we should make a campaign against the African Union or against the Southern African Development Community because it looked like the heads of state are sitting there with the nice dinners and then one say, oh, you made this kind of laws against gays and lesbians in your country and then they put it down, you know, and then go home and implement it, you know. Bad ideas about how you can oppress movements, people's rights and their liberties are spreading to, uh, to countries in Southern Africa. And I think that is critical that Swaziland is one of the ones who are spreading things. The ANC leadership had feel deeply inspired by how the Swazi king is behaving. Eh? 
And now they don't have Schumer as a president any longer. Thanks God for that. And thanks God for the South Africans that they don't have him any longer. But the, the whole, uh, you know, use of traditional leaders, you know, that the president use uh, traditions and culture and custom to underline his political power is extremely dangerous because then it's not an issue about if you are a citizen in a country with citizen rights, but if you belong to the right ethnic group. And that is the way to civil war and disaster, I think, in my eyes. Eh? So Swaziland is, by being such a poor example of poor governance, you know, the, even the, the Minister of Finance is saying that 70% of all money disappear in corruption. And we keep on, I know you're not a member of the European Union, but at least the European Union keep on pulling money into this regime. And, and I, I, I've always, and I've never got an answer on it, wonder why. Eh? Because there is not, no kickback. There is no kickback. Yeah? Uh, the, the Europeans don't get any things out of it. The only one who gets anything out of Swazi Sugar is the Coca-Cola company in, in South Africa. Nobody else gets anything out of it. So, so uh, why is it so interesting to keep on let this machine floating? Yeah? Uh, and I think that is, I, I, nobody has the, car, <laughs> the answer for it, but, but I think there is, actually I think they, for the Americans it's important to have a, a friendly country next to South Africa <laughs> that they can control, uh, because they cannot control the South African government. Eh? But for the, for the European Union, I doubt why. So my organization has uh, for 15 years now supported different grassroots movements in the country with the, uh, first of all, to try to strengthen their structures. What is very difficult in a country where people who fight for democracy is called terrorists. Eh? Um, and where we who, who, who pay the money are also called terrorists <laughs> and are labeled as terrorists. And the, 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 the then Minister of Foreign Affairs a couple of years ago, he, he mentioned that members of my organization should actually be tortured as a kind of, you know, he said that proudly to their newspapers in the country. You know? But did a little bit scary to go to the next visit. Huh? And we have been kicked out of the country a number of times. They have never beaten us, I must say, not really seriously. They have only beaten us a little bit. But, but they, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's difficult to work with people in a country where the biggest factor of people doing nothing is fear. <coughs> They don't fear for getting killed. They fear for losing their livelihoods. Yeah? Most of the Swazis are depending on a small piece of land for their survival. Yeah? And then some of them have some small jobs. Yeah? And all this will disappear overnight if they start to engage into a movement who are by the government or by the authorities described as a terrorist movement. So how do we, how do they try to get under the radar and, and organize people anyway. And this, we have tried many things, some of it have failed completely, and some of it have been more successful. And one of the more successful stories is an organization called the Rural Women's Assembly, with a, as it said in the name, a women in the rural areas. And that use Swazi culture, but not the Swazi culture around uh, the king, and the king is appointed by God, what is quite Funny because a lot of the Swazi culture and tradition is pagan tradition. It's not Christian, so he's appointed by a Christian God to uh, to make pagan uh, rituals. Right? But it's quite a conflict in itself. 
Uh, but they are coming from the rural areas, so using Swazi culture, but without this king being a part of it. And that have attracted quite a lot of women, uh, because women are uh, the, the, the main uh, supplier of food and income in most families in the rural areas. And they are the, the stable ones in the families. So, so, uh, so that movement have now moved uh, to uh, how many members? I think 12,000 members now? around that, um, but it's quite impressive uh, for a small country like uh, Swaziland. And of course the need of assistance, and uh, I can tell you know, the last time I was uh, to a meeting with them, you know, in completely rural areas, you know, uh, police turn up, the local chief turns up, and, the, and they demand the right to speak. Huh? They demand the right to speak, and they start, uh, they're all men, and they start to speak to the women about their, spa their, their space is to be obedient to men, you know, and not resist their husbands. You know, they're using all the tricks in the books to try to discipline uh, the women, uh, maybe five, six hundred women sitting in front, uh, standing in front of them. Huh? Um, so, so, uh, so the police and the authorities and the chiefs, uh, well, quite often the same, <laughs> see this group as a threat. That's good, because that means they have some, some success. So that's the kind of work we are doing. Um, and, and at the moment, we are working quite a lot with a, what is called Swaziland United Democratic Front. It's an umbrella body of democratic-minded organizations, from the trade unions to some of the bad political parties, youth movement, unclad movement, this rural women's movement, and, and the organization of former mine workers from the mines in South Africa who didn't get their money when they got back. They're, they're kind of uh, called uh, social movements uh, who are strong in numbers uh, and are weak in administration to say it very much. <laughs> uh, because we as Biggie said, we also deeply believe that changes in that country need to come from below. They need to be understood by people that democracy is not only an issue about voting, it's about getting influence on your daily life. Uh, we could learn something ourselves on that. Um, election coming up in Denmark soon. Uh, and that uh, that you need to, as a small country like Swaziland with a little bit more than one million people, it is possible to make a much more democratic community or society where people have a real influence on their daily life because the countries are small. Um, so, so they have more options than South Africa in many ways. Uh, if they want to, to do it at the moment, they don't. And they get all the support from the international bodies they can get. Yeah? The African Union, the SADC, uh, Southern Africa Development Community, from South Africa, from the European Union, from the Americans, and from Taiwan, of all places. So, <laughs> so they're not really protected. Uh, they're well protected, the, the regime. Thank you. questions um, just that I thought about before the event and also based on some of the remarks that have been made and then I'm going to open up the floor uh, for questions. I'll try not to take up too much time and I'm just going to ask the three panelists to please be cognizant of time when you're answering. Um, the first question that I will ask is I know that as you've said there's a lot of fear in Swaziland um, and one of the questions I was going to ask is how big the membership of your, of your organization is. I heard 12,000. In your work and in your engagement with people in Swaziland, are there rumblings of 
we want to change, and the change that we want is democracy. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't agree. <laughs> now he can give his vision. Uh, I can. Uh, I can say that, uh, of course, there are those who who want uh, a democracy in Switzerland. There is also one other organization, which is, uh, I don't know what they are calling for. It's uh, a kind of a monarchy that still has lots of power. Uh, but uh, serious organizations like trade unions and of course the bent political parties, those they are calling for, for outright uh, democracy. What about the people on the ground? Mm. It's a difficult question uh, because uh, as we are talking about fear, that we, we actually don't know what uh, the real feelings of people are on, 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 on the issue of democracy. Yes. But I think democracy is just, uh, it's just a means to achieve a social economic status that is a bit high. So people really want to change their lives, as uh, many, many people are, are living uh, in harsh conditions. In Swaziland. Yeah. But there is actually there's an organization called Afrobarometer. Yeah. And they make opinion polls and they don't ask the regimes doing it. So what they do is that they, they, they make the interviews without informing their churches. So, so it means, it, and the Swazis or churches got quite upset because they had two main questions uh, for the Swazis. Was, one, do you think your government is doing good? And the other was, do you think your head of state, the king, is doing good? You know? and, and the two things are interlinked because the king appoints the, the government. Huh? Um, so, and he's the only one who can appoint the government. So, so if the government do bad, it is because the king has been making a poor choice. Uh, and, and actually, <clears throat> more than 60% of the population didn't think that the government was doing well. And interesting enough, 40% of the population didn't think the king was doing well. And I know that's not half or anything like that, but in, in a country where you, you, you only whisper if you have a critique of the king, you don't say it loud, you know, you don't do it in a public uh, space on a bus or anything like that, then, then it's actually quite impressive numbers. And, uh, you know, it, it was around 1,500 people who was interviewed, but it's not bad in Swaziland. Um, so, so there have been some things. I think one of the main problems for talking democracy in Swaziland is actually not that in itself, it's actually South Africa, because everything in Swaziland is compared to South Africa. So we, when you say multi-party democracy, they will say Zuma, huh? so you want us to have a Zuma? Huh? And then you say, no, no, that's actually not what I'm talking about. I think you should find out how you want to do it. But, but people don't know what democracy is, that they have never left it, and they don't, don't know what they mean. And, and for, for generations, people have been told that this is the only right way of living. So, so the alternatives are weak, but that don't mean people cannot see that it's unjust, yeah? because people can see it's unjust. And that is the main problem for the democratic movement, is to take this big thing about democracy and human rights and so on, and put it into a, a way for ordinary Swazis to understand it. And there's many reasons for that. The main reason is that the democratic movement is run by 
well-educated or better-educated people, a lot of them in urban uh, settings and so on, and there's no problems in that. It's good that they're doing it. But it also means that the links to the rural spaces are quite uh, remote in many uh, many cases. Um, and that they don't... And there concerns are not the concerns of poor Swazis. Eh? They have different concerns. So, for example, there's quite a big group of Swazis who want change in the country because they're businessmen. And because the king also controlled the economic fears of the country, it means that they have very little space for people who are not on friendly hands with the king. And they want change simply because they want to be businessmen. So they're only Democrats because they want to be, they want to, their business to, to grow. Eh? But that's that's okay. But it's a slightly different than a smallholder farmer, you know, who who are treated very badly. You know? Yeah, I can just have a small bite, uh, and I'm just going to use my experience as having worked as a journalist for a while in Swaziland, and also having got a lot of uh, <coughs> contacts in in the royal family. But I just want to take you on a fish, fish, fictitious journey. Just consider Swaziland as this movie where the king absolutely controls every sphere of the, of the population. And his father had 200 children and about 60-something wives. In 1986, when I was born, the country had about 500,000 population. And the king had about 200 children. And polygamy is well accepted and well practiced, at least in the country, maybe rescinding now. So go back to 1968 when I was born. The country population is about 500,000. The country had, since, since 1973, for that short period, 1968 up to 70, they'd never seen what multi-party democracy is, what human rights is, whatsoever, have no idea. All they see is war in Mozambique, war in South Africa, war everywhere in the continent, and they've never experienced war. And when the people talk about democracy and the king, uses the arsenal of the state, the education, everything, says democracy equals wars. And the people are right to believe. They look at Mozambique, they look everywhere. So there is a generation of Swazis that, they were, that were born and they were bred under those conditions over a very period of time. Now, that puts into context what are the demands, what are the needs of the people of Swaziland. One, democracy is just a word we use to interact with people like you and me perhaps who want to understand that we need the state, the power of the state, to transform the people of Swaziland. But the ordinary conditions of the people of Swaziland not necessarily relate directly to democracy. The people of Swaziland want to live better lives, they want social economic conditions to improve, they want to have the rights that many people are accepting today. But I know this because, you know, having been a journalist and you ask people to understand what rights are, have people have absolutely no idea what a right is because they've lived under a monarchy all their lives, generations of the generations. That's number one. Number two, the country has one newspaper where the, the so-called, there are two newspapers, the Observer and the Times. The Observer is the paper owned by the king, 100%. The Times group editor is the king's spokesperson, speechwriter. <laughs> He becomes the group editor. So in the realm of ideas and to understand things, where do people, there's only one radio station in Switzerland, controlled by the team. There's only one television station in Switzerland, controlled by the team. Now every district of about 2,300, 40,000, 30,000, 20,000 is controlled by chiefs 
who are brothers and sisters of the king, who have, who by the constitution have rights to evict people over their land. Mm. So those things combined together, they produce a particular kind of swaza who has no idea about democracy, who has no idea about human rights, but also who owe his entire existence. When he goes to school, the school teaches him that we are Swazis, we are unique, we are unique because we have a king, we are unique because we are not following these human rights, which are suddenly going to give all these women all these rights to challenge men and stuff like that. Who conflate tradition and culture to be about the king, such that the whole thing about Sources without a king is considered to be an abnormal thing that shouldn't even come near to. Mm. So therefore, the correlation between sources wanting change and relating it to democracy has been the biggest challenge for democratic for democracy activists to relate how change, how democracy, how human rights relates to mm. the governance model of the country. And we are talking about you know it's strange because here it's allowed to talk like this. In Swaziland, when we tell people here that we used to work, we used to have meetings just to educate people about human rights, what you call underground meetings, where we meet under the auspices that we are meeting in church, yet we are talking about teaching people what you, you know, the thing that is so basic to someone else, we have to teach people that you have a right to this, or this is the right. Oh, this is this, this is that. And we're doing this thing. Linda. If you were to say, for example, when we're trying to form, when we're trying to form human rights organizations, trade unions, you know, forming them, human rights organizations, student movements, you know, the conditions under which people have to be formed, it's quite amazing. It's only now recently with the advent of social media, cross-pollination of ideas with South Africa and otherwise, that has perhaps seen people really trying to warm themselves up to the idea of change. But then, of course, the liberation movements in their, in their uh, in, in power hasn't done little to help Swazis to appreciate that life will be better in a democracy. They are really struggling where they are to, to relate completely with the agenda for change. Mm -hmm. So, Becky, it's not about just democracy in and of itself, uh, you know, the value of democracy in and of itself. It's about changing the lives of people in Swaziland. How, will, how is um, your organization thinking about using democracy as a tool to change the lives of people in Swaziland? Because, for example, in South Africa, in Zimbabwe, in other countries in Africa where there is a democratic model, to some degree, people's lives are not changing. How will that, how do you envision democracy being a tool for better lives in Swaziland? Yeah. Uh, the first thing in Swaziland will be controlling the economy because now 60% of the economy is uh, controlled by the monarchy. So we need, uh, we need that economy uh, so that we plow it back into, into the public. I think one thing Swaziland needs to invest in is uh, its people. We don't have uh, much natural resources except the people. That means uh, we need to invest a lot in education uh, because that's the resource that uh, we have to be able to, to drive the economy. One other important factor in Swaziland is uh, freeing the land in the rural communities because now that land is used for political reasons. It's not used to advance uh, the economic lives of uh, people living in rural communities. So there has to be a concrete plan to deal with uh, the land question. 
this land I'm talking about, it's 70% of the people living in, on that land. But this land is uh, not economically viable for those uh, communities. It's just uh, small-scale farmers, and the government is not investing in, uh, in rural development, such as irrigation or supporting the, the subsistence farmers. So I think if we invest a lot uh, in that, we will be able to transform the economy of Swaziland. And uh, I must, because yeah. I think it was interesting because you mentioned South Africa. Yeah. He said, we want to control the economy. Yeah? South Africa, 25 years down the road, they have not controlled the economy. Yeah? Yeah. So it's the, so two different directions. Yeah? South Africans, they control the political sphere, the new government, <coughs> but they don't control the economy. Yeah? That's the reason you have a lot of conflicts. That's the reason why the state is robbed and not the people who have the values are robbed. Yeah? So, so, um, uh, so, so it's a completely other set out uh, starting point than, uh, than uh, the South African government had in uh, '94. So then, if you have democracy, what needs to happen <coughs> in that democracy to ensure that you go from political freedom to economic freedom and social upliftment? Because you, I mean, I think both you and Mangoba have said it's not just about democracy, it's about changing people's lives. Yeah. How will democracy be the vehicle to change people's lives? Yeah. No, I think, uh, of course, this is uh, something that goes together, the politics and, and the economy. So people have power to, to decide what they want in a democratic process. Mm -hmm. So then you democratize, the, you democratize the structure of the economy so that people are able to, to influence with that. In many African countries, uh, it's one of the things that uh, didn't happen. We just... Uh, had political freedom after independence, and then there was less concentration on the economy. Mm -hmm. Of course, the hand of the, of, the, of the international community was also big in contributing to that through the IMF uh, uh, with the neoliberal policies on structural adjustment. So I think uh, for Swaziland, we will, need, uh, we will need to use that power to try to transform the economy, the political power to try to, to transform the economy uh, of Swaziland. Okay, and... Which will be, of course, challenging because the Swazi economy is so much linked to the South African economy. Mm -hmm. The South African economy is, is a neoliberal economy and it's one of the economies that is actually destroying these uh, small states around mm. Swaziland, Lesotho. We, because we are so much linked uh, to South Africa. Lots of imports into Swaziland come from, from South Africa. Mm -hmm. we, we will need to deal with that so that we are able to have our own local businesses inside uh, Swaziland. I was just talking to you this morning that there is lots of agricultural products that come from South Africa, for example, vegetables, we could be producing those in Swaziland. The land is fertile and we have lots of water to do that, to then uplift uh, the subsistence uh, farmers. So th there are opportunities, uh, but that will be the challenge that we'll have to face, uh, trying to move away from the South African economy, which has dominated for it's over 120 years since uh, the formation of SAC in 1908. It's uh, many, many years. So this idea of democracy 
being valuable and then also it being a tool for, for changing people's lives. What, Manuela, do you think, and you as well, Martin, do you think political parties or people that are pushing for democratic change need to say and how should they be saying it in order for the rest of Swaziland to get on the same page as them and to actually begin to mobilize? Because you guys all said there was some kind of disconnect and people weren't necessarily understanding mm. that democracy was important to, to change their lives. That's a good question. Okay, yeah, I think uh, for me, <coughs> for me, I think the important point is to is to liberate the country's potential to engage with the people and take mandate from the population around what are the policies that the government must pursue that will deal directly with the socio-economic conditions they face. So I think the politics is linked to the economy in that way. That's the, now, once people have control over their government, they can hold the government accountable, they can mandate a government to take deliberate policies that change their lives then you can have but better legitimacy to deal with issues of the economy and social justice. Now, the second thing for me, I think which is important, is to deal decisively with the power of the monarchy on the cookie jar. Because the king has this Tagangwani, which is a conglomerate of several economic interests in the country, be it retail, uh, be it uh, transport, supplies, you name it. Mm. Those are companies that are in the same mode as the sovereign wealth fund here, except they don't pay tax, except they're 100% owned by the king. But more than anything, they were established by the Swazis because when we got, before we got independence, Sobuza, the previous queen, said, we need to buy all this land from the British who are leaving the country. We need to buy it and buy it. So what can you say? Every Swazi contributed a cow, and we started this fund called DB. This fund was, is, as it said today, is a trust held. The king holds it in trust for the Swazi nation. Now, if Swaziland has to really play a significant role in changing the economy, it has to first take back that fund, that Tibiotarangwane and Tisuba, so that they can use the monies generated by those companies to help the fiscals and increase the revenue and then fund uh, social projects like education, health, and otherwise. <laughs> but, uh, well, my question was how Becky yeah. uh, belongs to a political organization yeah. that wants to demo democratize Swaziland. And some of the, one of the issues that was raised here is that there's a disconnect between yeah. the elites who are leading up these movements and the rural populations of Swaziland who form yeah. the vast majority of people. Yeah. How does a, a begging organization connect with those rural people in order to begin to mobilize people? What should they be saying and how should they be saying it? Very yeah. briefly. Yeah. <laughs> I will try to answer that because there is no answer. There's no we there's no right or wrong answers on it. But 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 you need to you need to transform some of these political movements because they are not traditional European understood political parties. They're more movement of people who join under a banner because they agree that there's something wrong and they want change. Not necessarily that they agree on everything and what kind of change. Eh? So it also do it a little bit confusing eh? and also make a lot of infights. Eh? But they need to get a much better grip in the rural areas and they need to, to, to have leaders who are not speaking in English, but speaking in Swati, who uh, speak the language of the rural poor and who 
take up their issues. Eh? And the main issue for poor Swazis are the same issue as it is for poor people everywhere in the world. It is security, security for food, for living, for land, for, for health, for that you are not kicked out of your land tomorrow. So, so when the king are using the issue about Swaziland as a peaceful country, and he keep on repeating that it's peaceful, 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 it is exactly what he's doing. He's speaking to the poor rural, rural population who know that all chains, they can be the losers. They will be the ones who pay the price because they have nothing to to. You know they have they have too little to to uh, to 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 live on already, and if there's any change, they will lose everything. So so security uh, and that transformation is coming with a kind of security <coughs> for people's <coughs> livelihood is extremely important in the message you are giving, and that gives some limitations on what kind of changes you can make. But, but, you know, I don't think on revolutions that you change everything overnight. I think it's a long process. But they need to find rural leaders who are much more rooted in, in the rural communities. Okay. Um, that's not easy. <laughs> I will ask just one more question before we open up the floor. Um, what kind of institutions do you think uh, democracy in Swaziland will need in order to yield the kinds of results that you guys are advocating for? Okay, just a quick one. I could just say that uh, I think for me, one of the important institutions, I think, um, perhaps uh, maybe I, I shouldn't answer you directly, maybe my colleagues will do so. But let me give uh, just a, a synopsis that would lead to those institutions. I think uh, what we need to do is to smash down all the institutions that have been created by the present state. Because the institutions that have been created are premised on two things, are premised on tradition and so-called culture, they're premised on royal supremacy, and they are promised, uh, and they are premised on uh, the relationship that the Swazi monarch has created with the South African elite and also other leaders. Because, I mean, recently there were reports that uh, Libya left money in Swaziland. So those institutions which have been built over time, the institutions that, for example, promote patriarchy, that promote uh, discrimination on the basis of, of, of gender and race, and many others. So when you smash those institutions in the, through education, uh, through consciousness, and on the ashes of that, then build a new society. A new society that appreciates that our culture and tradition is nice to have, but it evolves with time, it learns from other cultures, it learns from other nations, it takes what is good and then it changes with time. And those institutions, I guess, will have to be at the center of it, human rights, uh, um, in, in policy and everything. Secondly, mandate from the people, getting a mandate, renewing that mandate every year. But importantly, it is to contest the sphere of the economy because the sphere of the economy is now at the, is in the most extreme taken over by the king and most of the elites from around the continent. And I think uh, perhaps it, it will be very important to engage in that battle and take back the land that uh, perhaps is owned by most of these foreign nationals, which the king has given them long leases, is to take back the Tibio and Tisuga, which are significant players in the economy. And, uh, and uh, lastly, to ensure that uh, whatever that you are building has an understanding that the people are at the center of all change and that their mandate is important uh, in, in moving the country forward. No, I think uh, for me what is uh 
What I think will be fundamental in Switzerland is the is that we should establish a system that has a separation of powers. Uh, because now the system is controlled by the, the, the monarchy. The executive, the judicial is just one thing, uh, and the legislature is, is powerless. So I think we will need to, to make those arms of government separate so that parliament can hold uh, the executive accountable and the judiciary can really give justice uh, to ordinary people. Because now we are really stuck in that. The king is appointing the judges, and uh, the judiciary is used to victimize and punish uh, ordinary people. Mm. So I think that is fundamental in setting up uh, a democratic state. Yeah. I will start completely all place. I will start with education. Yeah. And the reason for that is that we know that the European educational systems was changed quite dramatically after the Second World War because uh, we wanted to not want a new generation of youth to become fascist or nazist. And uh, even it happened today, it was at least the intention of making the pedagogic school system that we know, uh, mainly in the Nordic countries, uh, the reason it is or the way it's built. And I think that is uh, what is needed in Swaziland, to have an educational system, break down conservative, stupid values and, and replace them with uh, with other values about uh, collective uh, and common uh, uh, standing together in a other way than, uh, than that the current system is, is doing. So I think that is a very, very important starting point. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, so we'll take some questions now. I'm going to start with uh, a round of three questions. Um, and in the interest of time, I'm going to ask uh, to address the question check one particular person so that we don't have everybody responding to the question. Um, the first question here, anybody else? <coughs> Second and third, okay. Uh, um, I don't know who the question is for, whoever feels that they should for an answer, I guess. Uh, many years ago, when I was a young man, I lived two years in Swaziland. Um, so I've been following the situation, I knew the situation fairly well back then, haven't really been following it that much since then. But uh, I'm very impressed by your personal stories and by your struggle. Um, I have a very brief question. Uh, you both, I think all of you have mentioned in passing the role of the trade union. Could you say something a little bit more about that in, in the struggle for democracy? And perhaps especially the role of Jan Sitorda, who at least back in the day when I was following was a major character. Yeah. <coughs> okay, it's a comment in the question. Uh, I think it's, it's very interesting that uh, I, I, this would be directed to Bangal actually. Uh, the, the smashing of, of whatever that exists in, in order to, to start off afresh. Uh, I, I think we have uh, a lot of things to learn from because we, we have this tendency of, of looking at other models from other countries, especially Europe. Uh, and USA and think everything works. The worst example we have is Libya. The whole thing started as if Libyans are going to be free. Where is Libya by today? Uh, and, 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 and secondly, you also made mention that in South Africa the democracy is not functioning. 
but I, I think the functioning of the democracy, whether it, it's got the economic part or political, it's got to do with what people, the interests of the people who are in office, because there's a lot of stealing of monies in, in, in South Africa. Do you think the reason that people in Swaziland, uh, as you used to say, they are, they are not conscientized, which I, I, be, I differ because there's a lot of Swazi people in South Africa, but do you think they, they are the way they are because some of them or most of them benefit from the situation and therefore they choose not to do anything because it, it is also going to make them lose or is, is it because of fear only? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Aspion Aydana and we also lived in Swaziland uh, quite some years ago under the old king. Uh, our strong impression then was that this was the most traditional and the, mo clo and the most closed society that we have been to, uh, I, I think. And um, at that time, the possibilities of any opposition to prevail was very, very slim. Also because the king definitely, through this old traditional system, had a lot of support in most of the country. And what I'm trying to figure out now is, it obviously has changed a lot, but it, 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 to what extent has it changed? And maybe I would like Mr. Dlamini to, 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 to respond to my question. Uh, because here you have described um, between you, uh, on the one hand, uh, the fear as a main a reason for the people not standing up. But on the other side, you have also emphasized the lack of knowledge and uh, the perception of what the democracy is, looking to other states and so on. Um, and is it so that still taking into account that 70% of the country, of the people living the, in the rural areas, that people are conservative, traditional, there isn't much ground for mobilizing them. Uh, probably it's both fear and tradition, but what would you say is the most important in the present situation? How, what, what is really the, 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 the ground for, for, uh, for political uh, 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 progress? Okay. Can we take the question about trade unions here? Yeah. Um, and can I ask you all to please be quite brief and <laughs> okay. not to provide too much context. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you ask about the, the trade union movement. Uh, the trade union movement has been very much vocal in terms of calling for democracy. Yes, I am. No, oh, sorry. I, I might have mixed you up. Yes, you said Mr. Clamini, but we're pointing at this. And normally it works to say Mr. Clamini is faster than everyone. In this case, it does. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, the, the trade union movement has been uh, instrumental in calling for democracy and advancing workers' rights. It's not only just calling for democracy. Uh, because. Uh, from the 19, in the 1990s, they actually achieved uh, a lot of things, uh, such as maternity leave, 
give a three months uh, maternity leave, which wasn't there before. So the trade union movement has achieved a lot. Uh, Janice Tolle was the secretary general of uh, the federation at, at some point. He is still in the struggle for democracy. He has formed a political party now, uh, which uh, ran for the, the elections in Switzerland, 2013. So he was a member of parliament between 2013 to 18. I do not agree about going for those kind of elections, uh, personal, because they don't change anything except uh, endorse the status quo. That's brief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll turn myself even. Um, I think I'll start with uh, Buntu's. Uh, yeah, Buntu's. I think that uh, Southland, of course, has to be explained in the context of the region in South Africa as well. I think one of the reasons, which partly explains why Southland have not risen up under the conditions, one is partly because, what you say, it's a deeply traditional society. Most of the people in 70% in the rural areas controlled by chiefs who have a right to evict and stuff like that. Secondly, the middle class in Swaziland, which is the more enlightened, we suffered when South Africa got its independence in 1984. Because most of the Swazis who had benefited from good education relatively in Swaziland migrated to South Africa. Mm. Now, it robbed us of the important intelligence and intelli intellectual class to lead this deeply rural, traditional society. So a lot of Swazis migrated to South Africa, mm. to high positions. To this day, a lot of Swazis are leaving South Africa, Swaziland to South Africa. Mm. I think that's the pair reason. The second thing I think linked to exactly what you're talking about is the fact that and I don't know, Martin, how far I can problematize this, but the king had has 16 wives, 23 children. His father had 67 wives and 200 children. All of those children are all, all have polygamy and everything, polygamous relationships. Yeah, yeah. So the king as a family itself constitute a significant, okay, not a significant, a part of the population. So, so a lot of Swazis see themselves in some way or the other as a lineage to the king. When the king, because we are a very small country, and the king has wives in different clans, so when he takes someone from my clan, Umalo, I feel a kind of lineage to the real family in some form or the other. So it kind of, that patronage extends significantly to people identifying themselves and their family line within the royal family. And the king uses that to say, oh, we're all one big family. It's just these rubble roses who are just making a lot of noise. <laughs> and then lastly, I think uh, your point about, uh, perhaps I want to agree with you that uh, Sobuza is the creator of all this. And he must be given credit because he was able to engineer a particular kind of society that, that saw him as a savior. He had saved them from wars because people saw all over these liberation wars and they saw Swaziland is peaceful, no one is fighting. And the king never raged on that uh, to make Swaziland feel special. The third thing, I think, because the king was using tradition and, and religion, which they have done brilliantly to fuse it together. The king is the head of all the denomination, at least the traditional religious denomination, is also a traditional leader. He uses that to have ideological control over a segment of population. But it's also perhaps a, 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 an indictment to us who believe in democracy that 
there are no worse conditions for mobilizing people. It talks to our strategies of yeah. reaching out to the people that perhaps they are not good enough that we are unable to penetrate. But but also things have happened. Your question about traditionalism and so on. Swaziland eh? they have a big textile industry of China, Taiwan, Chinese run eh? and uh, over the last 15 years. Almost a quarter million women have been working in this textiles. Eh? So it means that a lot of rural women have been uh, exposed to city life or urban life and have worked in these uh, sweatshops eh? under terrible work conditions, with terrible salaries, with a lot of sexual harassment and so on. But it also means that they have been exposed for unions, for, uh, you know, that things can be different, that you can stand together and you can fight, and they have done so. There was a long-going work or strike between uh, around the textile women in Swaziland. The police were stand arms. They used tear gas. They used rubber bullets. They were shooting at them with the armed uh, with the bullets. They the government asked them to go back to work. The king asked them to go back to work. The bishop asked them to go back to work, and they continued. Eh? And they had no support from nobody. Eh? There were no money, no trade union with a lot of cash to pay them anything. They cooked on the streets for food they got from, from, from people who supported them. That is, it, it shows that there is also, you know, it's a very, in Swaziland, it's completely unswazi that women go to the streets and demand their rights. Eh? And this is what's called fundis, first generation workers coming from the rural Swazi areas. And they are coming back different than they left uh, their communities. So they are also kind of uh, what you call wall breakers. They are w people who can be used to get into the rural communities now. Eh? And they used a lot of the organizations we are working with, exactly working with the textile women to get into the communities because after two years contract, they're going back to the communities. Then they need to be married and so on. But now they have other understanding and they have seen how power has been misused to control them. Eh? They are living in terrible uh, living conditions. And all the land is owned by a royal family, and they're the ones who earn all the money on their poor salaries. They're paying for small, small rooms. They're paying a high salary, a high rent for them. Right? So there is a there is sign of things changing. Eh? Uh, quite a number of rural communities have over the last sorry, ten years uh, rebuilt. Eh? Um, yeah, yeah. I have to cut you short. I'm That's so sorry. okay. Um, so we we don't have any time for any more questions because okay. we come to uh, just after it's almost twenty five to eight. Um, the last question that I will ask Mangoba and then we have to sorry, uh, Dave, <laughs> is that what can people who now know what is going on in Swaziland say to their government, say to the international community about liberating the people of Swaziland or helping the people of Swaziland to liberate themselves either economically or politically? Yeah, uh, it's a brief message. Uh, for those who are in, in organizations, they will just uh, try to convince their organizations to support similar organizations in Swaziland. As I said before, uh, the liberation cannot come without the people in Swaziland. So I believe in supporting the movement inside Swaziland. For those who engage with governments or politicians, of course they can say more on Swaziland. Uh, diplomacy is one of those tactics that could be used. And sometimes public shaming helps. But uh, 
diplomacy, public shaming, and uh, supporting the movement in Swaziland. I think that will help us. Uh, I have to uh, end the discussion. Um, thank you to our three panelists for uh, talking to us today and for answering the few questions that we did have. Um, if you want to engage them uh, one by one, maybe that's a possibility. Um, and thank you yes. to Hilda and uh, the Norwegian Council of Africa for having us today. I've certainly learned a lot. Thank you.